Well, good morning again. So I'm Pastor Nathan. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark. We've started on Easter. And these last couple of weeks, we have been looking at how conflict has been developing between Jesus and some of the religious authorities. And, and it really kind of is, is encapsulated in Jesus' parable about the, uh, new, the new cloth and the old cloth, the new wine and the old wineskins. And we saw that, that Jesus is the new. And as the old wineskins and the old cloth try and take control of Jesus, they're only bringing destruction. And so Jesus, last week we saw this, this pressure between the old way, which was trying to insist upon legalism, primarily through Sabbath observance, and Jesus, who declares himself as this new way, as the Lord of the Sabbath, as this person who brings a, a relationship with him that comes before rules, and we see that there is this irreconcilable difference between the, the, the way of the Pharisees, which is legalism, and this way of grace, this way we call the life of Jesus, which Jesus is bringing. And so in Mark 3, 6, we see this kind of rupture, where the old way says Jesus has to be destroyed. And they begin to plot to destroy Jesus. And so what happens in 3-7? Jesus starts going towards this new way, and he starts building this new community of believers that will live the life of Jesus, that will be people who are centered around Jesus. And really what begins right here in, in 3 verse 7 is something that we right now are participating in. We are part of the work that Jesus has begun. We are part of the community that Jesus has created. And what Jesus uh, defines and creates in this passage is the same definition that marks all of us. We are in kind of a, a chain that, that connects us from these original disciples to us today. And, and really, the, the way we recognize that is the main point of this passage, which is that our gathering as believers witnesses to Jesus as the King. Our gathering as believers witnesses to Jesus as the King. See, that's what's happening in this passage. Jesus is calling to himself the 12 apostles. And these 12 apostles are created to be a witness and to be messengers of the news that the king has come and his name is Jesus. And every single one of us are descendants of the original apostles' work. And we're we're links in a chain. We pass that message along. So what we read about here is the news that we have been stewarded with and we are a picture of, which is a very exciting thing to recognize that our gathering as believers witnesses to Jesus as the king. That is a very exciting foundational thing for us to grasp as a, as a church plant. Because we have been called and gathered here, where just 10 weeks ago, there was no church. But God in his providence and in his sovereignty and in his call to each and every one of us on our lives has gathered us here to witness to this community around us, Jesus 
is king. And that is happening every time we gather. That is happening right now. Our gathering as believers witnesses to Jesus as the king. And that is so important for us to grasp for a couple reasons. One, because these last few years has really created a challenge to the question of how important is it to gather for church? How important is it for believers to gather? We all know since the pandemic, and there was a necessity involved in that, but we all know from the pandemic that it is now so easy for us to do church on our couch. And there are many people who have gotten so comfortable with doing church on their couch that the question of going to church does not seem to be a very persuasive thing anymore. Many people just have have ceased going to church. And, And the question is, if I can worship and I can get the word in my living room, why go to the mess of gathering? So we have kind of this sense that, that maybe the gathering is not that important. We recognize then that this passage, which is Jesus calling this first gathering of believers around him and their function as witnesses to him as king, we recognize that there is a major call upon us to gather. That gathering is an important part of the Christian life. We gather because we are kingdom people. So we're going to look at this passage and see why our gathering as disciples is something we cannot neglect, but something that we need to prioritize because of its substantial witness to the world around us. We're going to see three ways that the gathering of disciples witnesses to the kingship of Jesus. So if you have your Bible, we're going to start looking at verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. And if you uh, would like, we have these uh, sermon outline pages from the back that uh, you can follow along. It uh, has fill in the blank, so you know, there's some interactive uh, activity there. But our first, we're going to look at these three ways the gathering of disciples witness to the kingship of Jesus. The first way is that the gathering shows that Jesus' reign extends to all places and peoples. The gathering shows that Jesus' reign extends to all places and all peoples. Now, uh, Mark lists for us a bunch of different locations of, of, of people where they have come from and they are coming to Jesus. Jesus is located uh, up in the Sea of Galilee around the city of Capernaum, which is kind of the north corner. But here is why your Bible has maps in the back of it. But let's get ourselves familiar with the, the map of, of Israel. All right, so we, we have this map of Israel. You can see the, the, the Lake of Galilee is the body of water at the top, and then you have the Dead Sea down at the bottom. So Jesus is primarily uh, right up there in Galilee at that, that, that very top body of water, and he's at the very top of that top body of water. All right? And we have to recognize that everything he does is on foot. Okay, so, so he's not moving around a lot. And yet, we are hearing that the news of Jesus has been carried by foot to all these different locations. And so as we look at the next map, we see that this area of Galilee and this area of Judea, they have started to hear about Jesus. And they are gathering and they are coming to see Jesus. 
But then we're also told these other areas, go to the next slide, we are, we are told if, uh, uh, yeah, we're told that Idumea is also got people who are coming from, uh, to, to see Jesus. And Idumea is even south of Israel. It's, it's, a, it's a, the region of Edom. It's, it's way south. And then, as we see, there's also this area called Beyond the Jordan, and then the area of Tyre and Sidon, which is way up at the north. So as we look at this map, we are seeing that Jesus' ministry is gathering people from all over this holy land of Israel, right? In fact, even outside of Israel, okay? So when we look at these maps, we are seeing that People are gathering from north, west, south, and east. The reach of Jesus is international. There, there are residents that are coming to Jesus that do not live in, in uh, Judea, but they, they live in the areas of Syria and the areas of Idumea. So there is an international reach that is being demonstrated by these crowds that are coming to Jesus. Now, the text is not to make an emphasis of this, but we can also glean that there is a multi-ethnic aspect of this gathering. Because uh, Galilee and Judea, those were primarily Jewish descendant cities. But the areas of beyond the Jordan, the areas of Tyre and Sidon, those are communities that are primarily Gentile. We will see the, the, the story of Mark mention more and more of these Gentile residents coming to Jesus. So we have not just Jews coming to Jesus, but we also recognize that Jesus' ministry is gathering the interest of people from other countries, other ethnicities, other nations. So this geographical scope begins to show that the kingdom are people of all nations. Right? This is the very beginning of it. But it's the seed of this promise that Jesus will be the king of a kingdom that extends to all nations, which we read about in the Great Commission. Go and preach the gospel to all nations, all ethnicities, all borders. So what's the importance of this, this little episode here? It reminds us of the scope of the kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus is bringing includes people that are Jew, includes people that are Gentile, includes people that are old, includes people that are young, includes people from every ethnicity, includes people from every color, includes people from every educational background, includes every sort of person that you can imagine. Jesus' kingship goes over all people, all nations. There is no part of this world, there is no people group that Jesus' kingship does not claim are his. And this is the beginning of that. Jesus is Lord of all. Now, here's the thing that's so exciting about being a gathering on, on, on Sunday morning here in the year of 2023. Because we are gathered kind of like this first gathering. You come from places all over, backgrounds all over, educations uh, different, ethnicities different. You have backgrounds that in some ways cover all corners of the globe, right? We have people that have come from outside of this country and then have been brought into this country. We are a diverse group a people who have come from northwest, south, and east, a people who represent all sorts of other people. 
And yet we have all been gathered. And our gathering is one of thousands of other gatherings happening all over the world. In fact, today, there is a gathering like this happening everywhere. Dwell upon that. Christians are being gathered into communities in every country in the world. Some of them are doing it in secret, like in Iran or in China. Some are doing it publicly, like we are. But everywhere in this world, there are believers who are gathering to show as they gather that Jesus' reign extends to all places and all people. Do you know what that tells the world? When after 2,000 years, people are still gathering to worship Jesus? We are witnessing that Jesus is not just Lord of all, but that he is alive. He is alive and he is actively ruling. Your gathering is a witness that Jesus is alive. Because nothing but the living Lord has the power to bring us together and to reach everybody across this world with the same sense of, I know him and I love him. That's a a powerful, a powerful thing that is happening every time we gather. We gather to say, he is here. We gather to say, he is here. Every Lord's Day, this is said in every gathering. And so in every gathering that adds up to saying to this world, the Lord is here. There is nowhere where the Lord is not. The world wants us to to think that our beliefs are foolish. They want to ridicule our beliefs. They want to make us feel like we're all alone, that nobody really thinks that, what you think, that you're just kind of bonkers. And yet, we gather to look around each week and recognize that we are not alone, that our awareness that he is here is not something that is private to me. It is something that is shared by all who come together. And so as the world tries to bombard our faith and try to make us question whether we we know what we know, we cannot neglect gathering. Because look around you. These are your brothers and sisters who can remind you, yes, he is here. He is ruling. We don't experience that in our living room. I, I will confess that you know, my, my faith wavers. Uh, sometimes the, the attacks from, from culture or sometimes the temptations in life make me question. And I, and, I, and I waver and I struggle and I have doubts that creep in. And I have found over the years that one of the most powerful witnesses and evidences against my doubts is that I can pick up a book written by somebody who's dead, been dead for 500 years, and I can read that person having the exact same relationship with Jesus that I'm experiencing right now. 
I can go on a plane to another city and I can meet someone who knows the same Jesus I know in a personal way the way I know him. And I do this for across centuries, across countries, across borders, and it, and it edifies and reinforces our faith. That is what we do when we gather. We gather to show that Jesus' reign extends to all places and all peoples. The second, though, that, uh, um, way that gathering witnesses to the kingship of Jesus is that gathering shows the kingdom is centered around Jesus. The kingdom is centered around Jesus. So Jesus goes up to a mountain. We don't know exactly what mountain it is, but he goes up to a mountain, and we are told in verse 13 uh, these words. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. So Jesus is now calling out of the crowd his 12 disciples or his 12 apostles. And in calling them to himself, he is showing that the kingdom of God that he has been preaching, the kingdom of God that he has been bringing, is a kingdom that is centered in Jesus. Jesus is the center of the kingdom of God. And we see this by two different uh, uh, things that Jesus does in this passage. First, we see that the kingdom is centered because Jesus is the one who calls. The kingdom is centered on Jesus because Jesus is the one who calls. Now, the language that, that Mark reports of Jesus calling these, peop- uh, these disciples to himself is language that in the Old Testament is the language that God used in electing people. The call of Jesus is is an act of him choosing who will be his people, and because he chose them, those people necessarily coming. So you see, when Jesus calls these 12, it is that call that brings them. These 12 did not assemble around Jesus because they chose Jesus first, They assemble around Jesus because Jesus chose and called them to himself. The authority of Jesus is demonstrated in the fact that he is calling those whom he desires. But even more than that, he calls 12. Jesus calls 12. Now, 12 is a a significant number. We run across the number 12 in our scriptures a lot. Probably the most significant Number 12 that we come across in the scriptures in the Old Testament is the 12 tribes of Israel, right? The 12 tribes of Israel. Here Jesus is calling 12. He is calling 12. And that brings us into a memory of the 12 tribes of Israel. So, Where is Jesus in that 12? He's not one of the 12. Jesus is outside of the 12. The 12 are gathered to him. Well, if Jesus is doing this to reflect the 12 tribes of Israel, who's the only person in the calling of the 12 tribes of Israel who are not part of the 12? 
God. God was the gathering of the twelve. Jesus is the gathering of the twelve. As we have seen time and time again with Jesus forgiving of sins, Jesus calling himself the Lord of the Sabbath, with uh, uh, Jesus being the final interpreter of the law, we are seeing that Jesus again is presuming and taking upon the prerogative that has belonged to God alone. He is placing himself in the position that God places himself in the calling of the 12 tribes of Israel when he calls the 12 disciples to himself. And the language that is used here is creation language. He makes these 12 a people. He is the creator of the 12. And why does he create the 12? The 12 he he, he brings together are to witness to Jesus. Just as the 12 tribes are to witness to God, these 12 uh, disciples are to be witnesses to Jesus. So Jesus is creating a new people, And he is placing him at the center. This is profoundly Christological. What he is doing is he is saying who he is. He is in the same place as we find God who gathered the 12 tribes. So their existence, the 12's existence, is there to point to Jesus' lordship. Jesus is the Lord over the 12. He is the king over the 12. And that remains the case for us today. What Jesus is doing with the 12, he is doing at every gathering called by him to worship him. Every gathering, the gathering that we are in right now, carries the same purpose, to witness to his lordship. The apostle Peter writes in his very first epistle, Powerful words. He says, but you, speaking to the believers in in the area of Turkey at the time, but but in a sense speaking to all believers, says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who is the him in that passage? The hymn is the Lord Jesus. And yet, if you, if you pay attention to what Peter is saying and you go back to Exodus chapter 18, you will see that those words of being a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, those were first used to describe the, the Exodus generation, the Israelites. And yet here, the people that are surrounding Jesus, the people who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light to proclaim his excellencies, they are called the same. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Beloved, this is our mandate. In Jesus, we have been gathered to proclaim the excellencies of him. The second aspect of Uh, of how the gathering shows the kingdom is centered around Jesus is this, that we are centered because Jesus is the one who unites us. Jesus is the one who unites us. If we look at the 12 that are called, this is not a natural gathering. This This is not a group of people of similarity, of natural affinity, who we would see drinking beers together. This group has a lot of tension and pressure points in it. 
And yet only Jesus is able to bring them together. There are great differences, great tensions amongst these apostles. First, we talked about the calling of Levi the other week, a couple weeks ago, the tax collector. Levi, we know from a comparison of the names of the apostles in the other books, is the apostle Matthew. All right? So we have Matthew as one of the of the 12. Now we met Matthew being a toll collector at the Sea of Galilee, up, up in the same area that, that uh, Peter and Andrew and John are, and James are, are fishermen. Well, here's what's really uh, important about that. We remember that toll collectors were not very likable people, but their tolls that they collected, they were set based on how much the toll collector thought they could graft from the people. So they would set whatever number they thought they could get. And if Matthew was a toll collector in one of these fishing towns in northern Galilee, then he was likely the toll collector that taxed Andrew and Peter and James and John's fish. How many of us list as one of their best friends the tax man, right? We generally don't like the tax man. And Matthew would be known as the tax man, the one who took my hard-earned money, took more than he should have, the little grifter, keeping me poor, <laughs> keeping me under his thumb, making me feel Rome's oppression, Matthew. That, that's, that's probably the, the, the relational context that Peter and Andrew and James and John have with Matthew. I, I think it's reasonable speculation that there is real tension between those relationships. This is probably not the, the, the person that they would naturally bunk with. And yet Jesus calls Matthew and he calls these four fishermen and he says, you are going to be centered in me. But the, the, the differences get even more stark when we look at some of the other apostles. We, we see down towards the bottom of the list one named Simon. And he's one of the only uh, apostles that is given any description about who he is. He's called Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. Now, the Zealot was not just a description of you know, uh, how, how happy and excitable he was. The zealot was actually the name of a, of a political party in ancient Israel at this time. The, those who were part of the zealots existed out of a united hatred of Rome. A hatred of Rome that was so fomented and so sharp that they were prepared to go to war. They were just waiting for the moment. They were the militiamen who were just like living out on their, on their little uh, frontier plantation, just waiting for the government to show up because they want to they, they have a fireworks show. That's exactly what we have when we hear that Simon is a zealot. So he is as, as pro-Israel, pro-militant Israel as you can imagine. Now go back to Levi, Matthew, the tax collector. What does he represent to a zealot? He represents 
Rome. He represents everything wrong with Rome. He represents a, a turncoat. He represents a, a, a grifter, somebody who is, is a company man, who is, who is a, a, a traitor, a traitor to the country because he is serving Rome, taking the money from Jews and giving it to the oppressors. And Jesus says, uh, part of my 12 that we're going to spend all this time together, we're going to walk shoulder to shoulder together, we're going to sleep together in, in, in our hotels, and we're going to go do all of these different uh, things, and we're going to be together 24-7, 365. Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. You're going to be together. Can, can you imagine that? I mean, this, this would be like if uh, Sean Hannity and um, Rosie O'Donnell or uh, Whoopi Goldberg or something were, were forced into just being together all the time. And we would say, what a miserable existence that would be. But I would love to watch. <laughs> right? Well, that's what it's like for these two apostles. And we should recognize it as, as that stark of a difference. Why are there such great differences in the kingdom? Why would Jesus put such opposites together? Well, I think he has two purposes in this. The first is to show that the kingdom is for all people. Whether you're extremist on the right or extremist on the left, Jesus calls. And he invites you into his kingdom. There is no difference that Jesus cannot bring his lordship over. His kingdom is for all people. But second, when these kinds of differences are forced together, the only thing that holds them together is Jesus. And so when we have every reason to push ourselves apart and to divide, and yet we come together and we coexist and we gather in one place to worship, it only happens because Jesus is greater than our differences. Jesus is more wonderful than how much that person annoys me. Because I want to be in the room worshiping Jesus, and I'm not going to allow my difference with that person to keep me from that. Right? So Jesus shows what a powerful center he is to people of massive differences because he is able to unite people with massive differences because he is a greater thing they share in common than what they have in difference. So Jesus is centered to show that Jesus is the one who unites now, I, I think that there's a real important uh, application for us here. Because we can forget the power of Jesus to unite and unify us. And we can do that when we start making our differences more and more important. And so here's what happens. Differences will divide us. The moment Jesus is not the center. How do you know if your differences are out of proportion? 
How do you know if your personal preferences are out of proportion? How do you know if your individual viewpoints are out of proportion to your faith in Jesus? If those differences divide, then they have become bigger because Jesus is no longer the center. Right? At, at, at Renew, we are committed to this core value of being kingdom-centered. And when we say kingdom-centered, we are saying as a church that Jesus is king. He must increase, but we must decrease. We seek and serve his kingdom above all that it might be on earth as it is in heaven. Maranatha. So we are committed to trying to live out this principle of the kingdom by being centered on the kingdom and not upon our differences. So what happens when we gather, we gather to say, Jesus is Lord. That is why we gather. We do not gather to be a a, a voting machine for a particular political party. We do not gather to be an interest group for a particular uh, view of society. We don't uh, gather to be a a club that, that supports any number of wonderful things. We gather for one proclamation. Jesus is Lord. That's what this gathering represents. Third, gathering shows Jesus' kingship through our faithfulness. Jesus' kingship is shown through our faithfulness, and that is demonstrated in our gathering. So the kingdom is filled with Jesus' followers. And the word that Mark uses to describe followers again and again is the word disciples. So what is a disciple? What is a disciple? A disciple is one who is marked by faithfulness to Jesus. And our author, Mark, has done a a fascinating job of providing two contrasts of groups that are not marked by faithfulness versus the true disciple. And so we want to look at these two contrasts to make sure that our gathering is showing Jesus' kingship through our faithfulness. There are, there are two contrasts. The first is the contrast between those who are part of the crowds and those who are uh, followers or disciples. And then there is the contrast between those who have an external appearance of faithfulness and those who have an internal uh, disposition of faithfulness. And so we need to look at both of these because they're in our passage. The first contrast is faithfulness is, is contrasted by whether you are one of the crowds or whether you belong as a disciple. So if you go back to our passage, at the very beginning, verse 7 says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and all these other places. Do you you see how in the text there is this group of people called disciples, and then there is this group of people called the crowd? So in Mark's understanding, these are not one and the same. They have an overlap. They both have an interest in Jesus. But one is called a member of the crowd, and the other is called one of his disciples. What is the difference? What is the difference between the person who is a a crowd member and one who is a disciple? This is such an important question. The crowd all share this similarity. 
They are gathering around Jesus because of his benefits. They are gathering around Jesus because he heals. They are gathering around Jesus because he's a compelling teacher. They're gathering around Jesus because he casts out demons. They're gathering around Jesus because he's becoming famous and a celebrity, and they want to see it with their own eyes. But they're all coming, and they're coming to Jesus and even crushing against him because they want to get from Jesus some of this power that they have heard about. So they are mobbing him, touching him, trying to be healed by his presence. They are coming to him for his benefits. In contrast, the disciples are focused on Jesus himself. The disciples are focused on Jesus himself. And so when we look at what Jesus tells the the 12 apostles is their their mission, he tells them, when he he calls them apostles, the the apostles are still kind of an example for us of, of disciples, he basically says there's two things that mark a disciple. There is presence, he says in verse 14a that the, that the apostles will be with him. Be with him. That's the first thing that an apostle spends their time with, is to be with him. Right? That's, I, I think, a, a, a word that we can picture. What, what, is, what does it mean to be with somebody? What, what does it mean to be with somebody? It means to be there. It means to be at their side. It means to be in their company. It, needs, it means to be spending time. It means to be knowing them. It means to be interacting with them. It means to be interested in them. The people that we say we are with, those are the people we are close to, right? And so the disciple is someone whose life can be described as one with Jesus, Can you say, I am somebody who's with Jesus? Can you say, Jesus is someone who is with me? And if you have Jesus with you wherever you go, that will start affecting what you want to do. Is he with you? Is he with you in your choices? Is he with you in your priorities? Is he with you in your plans? That is what it means to be a disciple. To say, Jesus is with me. I am with Jesus. And then the second, Jesus says that you will be sent to take my name. So a a disciple is also someone who is is part of the mission of Jesus. He he is one that is being sent. He is a participator of Jesus' mission. You you see, to be a disciple is, is not to see your salvation as the end of your relationship with Jesus. Your salvation is the beginning. It's the conscription of you into Jesus' kingdom. We don't just say, yeah, I'm saved. I walked down the aisle. I filled out a card. We say, I am Jesus's. That's what it means to be saved. And when we say, I am Jesus's, we are going through the world. We are going through our lives to make Jesus known. We are sent to take Jesus out. A disciple does not look at faith like a 401k, something that you deposit your your heart into, (laughs) you deposit your soul into, and then you just leave it alone until happily heavenly retirement. That's not what a disciple is. 
A disciple is someone who is with Jesus and lives for Jesus. In short, it's our mission statement. A disciple is someone who is living in and living out the good news. There's a second contrast, though. There's a second contrast. And that is there is the the disciple by appearance and there is the disciple by heart. Verse 19 is a troubling verse. Of the 12 that Jesus calls, he also calls Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Of the 12 disciples, there was also one that was a disciple in name only. And the reality that Judas was one of the 12 is a cautionary tale. Because it tells us that not all who say they are disciples, not all who look like disciples, are truly disciples. Not all people who gather are truly confessing Jesus is Lord. Not all who say the words, Jesus is the Son of God, are truly disciples. Look back at verse 11. Verse 11, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Is the confession of the demons a confession of the saved? No. These words that come out of a demon's mouth do not have any allegiance, do not have any uh, closeness to Jesus. They are absolutely true. But the words themselves are not magic. The words themselves do not save. Otherwise, the demons here would be Christian. So we have to recognize that there is something more than just the words that we have said. There have to be more than just the company we keep. There have to be more than just the appearance of being a disciple. The disciple must be one who personally trusts in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Must be personally trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So let me disabuse you out of love. It is not that you're attending church. It is not that you're a member of a church. It is not that you are baptized. It is not that you've gone on mission trips. It is not that you have done good works. It's not that you have shared every Jesus meme on Facebook. It is not that you have family who love Jesus. It's not that you're married to someone who loves Jesus. It's not that your parents love Jesus. None of those make one a disciple. They can make you appear like a disciple. And your appearance, and I, I, I say this, I don't know. Appearances can fool other disciples. On the night that Judas betrayed Jesus, not a single other disciple thought, I bet it's Judas. That man walked and talked and did everything all of the other disciples did so well that none of the other disciples could guess that Judas would betray. But make no mistake, just because we can a fool 
by our appearances, the people to our left and our right, we will never fool Jesus. Jesus knew Judas was a betrayer when he called him. That's a great mystery of God's sovereignty. But it was not a surprise to Jesus. Jesus knew Judas. And so when I say that a disciple must personally trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we must take these words to heart from Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I cannot tell you a psychological makeup of Judas. He bothers me. But I can say by the witness of Paul's words, Judas's heart was never truly trusting in Jesus. And so the question is, as a disciple, does Jesus have your heart? Do you believe in Jesus in your heart? That is what is a person who is saved. There is a, there's a fundamental issue here of both of these contrasts. There is the view that, that, that many have of Jesus, that they, they are around Jesus, they like Jesus, they want Jesus, they enjoy Jesus because he is useful. He's the miracle worker. He's the answers to prayer. He's my get-out-of-jail-free card. He saves me from hell. There's all sorts of reasons why Jesus is useful. But if Jesus is only useful, do you love him? Or do you just love what he can do for you? You see, the disciple looks at Jesus not primarily as useful. He looks at Jesus and he says, you are beautiful. What is the difference between useful and beautiful? Useful sees them as a means to an end. Beautiful sees the person as the end. All I want is you. I want you and I love you. The crowds and Judas fundamentally saw Jesus as useful. And useful runs out. Useful will betray. But beautiful, beautiful says from the heart, I love you. It says from the heart, you are the center of my life. I put nothing above you. I will follow you anywhere. All I want is to be with you and live every moment for you. That is a Jesus that is beautiful. Do you know Jesus as beautiful? When we do, we gather to say, we are his. We are his. You see the importance of our gathering as a witness to Jesus as king? The Lord's Day unites every disciple through time and geography in witnessing to each other and to the world that Jesus is here, that he is the Lord, and that we are his. The gathering that was begun by Jesus in this passage has wound itself through the centuries and through the countries all the way to Lee Summit Elementary 
And it has called us to be part of this great witness of gathering. We gather because we have been called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Beloved, let us not neglect the gathering. Amen?